Hey there, it's Kathy. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to History of the 90s early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. When Bruce Pavitt, the head of Seattle indie label Sub Pop, came up with the idea for a concert that would showcase three of the city's hottest bands, people thought he was nuts. Local Seattle bands in the late 80s played dingy basement clubs for an audience of 20 or 30 people, not big theaters that could hold 1,400 people. But Pavitt pushed ahead with the show he called Lame Fest, which he ironically described as Seattle's lamest bands in a one-night orgy of sweat and insanity. Much to everyone's surprise, Lame Fest featuring Nirvana, Tad, and Mudhoney completely sold out. And if anyone was paying attention outside of Seattle, it might have been a signal that a new type of music was about to come crashing onto the scene. I'm Kathy Kinzora, and this is History of the 90s, a podcast about a decade that changed the world. On this episode, part one of a two-part series on the rise and fall of the generation-defining musical revolution known as grunge. For the uninitiated, grunge begins and ends with Kurt Cobain and Nirvana. Maybe sprinkle in a little Pearl Jam or Soundgarden and a few flannels, and that's grunge. A moment in time that has long passed, but frozen in our memories because of Cobain's early death. But grunge is so much more than one band and one singer, who yes, had an outsized impact on the movement, but was just one piece of an entire genre of music and an attitude that captivated the world at the beginning of the 90s. So let's go back to the beginning and start off by looking at where the term grunge came from and what it stood for. The first noted use of grunge to describe a Seattle band appears to date back to 1981. According to the book Loser, The Real Seattle Music Story by Clark Humphrey, grunge was first used in a letter by Mark Arm, who would later go on to front grunge bands Green River and Mudhoney. In the 1981 letter to a Seattle fanzine called Desperate Times, Arm mockingly wrote about his current band, I hate Mr. App and the Calculations. Pure grunge, pure noise, pure shit. Arm himself has pushed back on this idea that he invented the term grunge as a genre of music. He says he must have gotten it from somewhere else. Whether or not he came up with the term, Arm has an undeniable connection to the early grunge scene in Seattle. In 1984, he co-founded Green River, which is considered to be one of the first grunge bands. It featured Jeff Ament on bass and Stone Gossard on guitar, who would later form Pearl Jam. Green River recorded an EP called Dry as a Bone on Seattle-based indie label Sub Pop, which was headed by Bruce Pavitt. Pavitt has long claimed that he popularized the term grunge in promotional material that he wrote for the 1986 EP. He described the band as ultra-loose grunge that destroyed the morals of a generation. So we might not have a perfect answer regarding who came up with the term grunge as a style of music or who used it first, but I think we can agree on two things. Today, the word grunge is synonymous with the Seattle music scene of the 80s and early 90s. And even though that Seattle sound splintered off into several different distinct styles, we can also agree that the earliest grunge all shared a pretty similar sound. 
Joining me to talk about grunge is Alan Cross. He's an internationally known broadcaster, interviewer, writer, consultant, blogger, and speaker. In his nearly 40 years in the broadcasting and music business, Alan has interviewed the biggest names in rock and is also known as a musicologist and documentarian through programs like the long-running show and podcast, The Ongoing History of New Music. Grunge came about in the early 1980s, featuring a low-tuned guitar, something maybe a little slow and sludgy at times, uh, sometimes with screamy vocals. But basically what it was is taking what Black Sabbath had done in the 1970s, added a little bit of Kiss, a little bit of Jewish Priest, a tiny bit of Led Zeppelin, and created this menacing, well, in most cases menacing, low and slow kind of guitar rock. There were high levels of distortion, feedback, and fuzz effects in a fusion of punk and metal that grew out of the fact that Seattle was off the beaten path and a lot of bigger mainstream acts didn't want to travel there. What we ended up seeing was a, a movement of music north-south. So from Seattle down to Los Angeles and back, sort of hemmed in by the Rocky Mountains. And what would happen is that a lot of the bands from San Francisco and from Los Angeles and other areas to the south, instead of touring east, they would go up the coast. And this brought the punk rock hardcore attitude of Southern California and Central California north. So uh, these were some of the only bands that would play in the Seattle area. And because they were the only bands, they had an outsized influence on the young people growing up going to these shows. So that added a really interesting punk rock element to what already existed, which was this combination of Black Sabbath, Kiss, Judas Priest, and, and Led Zeppelin. Another part of the reason these early grunge bands had a similar sound was because many of them were produced by Jack and Dino, the so-called godfather of grunge. Andino worked out of Reciprocal Recording Studios, a small, unassuming, triangular-shaped building that had previously been a corner grocery store in an industrial neighborhood of Seattle. It didn't look like much, but in its heyday, it was the epicenter for grunge music. In its short run, the studio hosted a who's who of the Seattle grunge scene, and along the way, changed the trajectory of music history. Reciprocal Recording was first started by Chris Hansek and Tina Caselli in 1983. Hansek had relocated from Boston to Seattle after hearing from friends about the city's growing underground music scene. There were a ton of local bands, like the Melvins, the U-Men, and Green River, but there weren't many places to record. So in 1984, Hansek and Caselli opened Reciprocal Recording with the goal of getting some of those bands into the studio. With its $10 an hour recording rate, Reciprocal was immediately popular with local musicians. Between 1984 and 1989, the studio recorded many legendary grunge bands, including Soundgarden, Mudhoney, Nirvana, and Blood Circus. In 1985, Hansik and Caselli also started a record label called CZ Records. And before selling the label to focus exclusively on the recording studio, they released a compilation album featuring some of the local talent in Seattle. The album, called Deep Six, was released in March 1986 and featured Green River, The U-Men, Skin Yard, Malfunction, Soundgarden, and The Melvins. Let me 
had a limited edition run of 2,000 copies. And although it has become the stuff of legends as one of the first important records in the history of grunge, at the time, it was ignored for the most part outside of Seattle. Deep Six perfectly captured what was happening in Seattle's underground music scene in the mid-80s. Long-haired musicians wailing away in front of tiny crowds at squalid clubs like the Central Tavern or Squid Row. It was a tight-knit group of Seattle-area bands. They broke up, members changed, new bands were formed, but it was a small circle of the same people cycling through. In addition to CZ Records, there was also Sub Pop, the indie label that was home to Green River and headed up by Bruce Pavitt. Pavitt, who I mentioned earlier, had an extremely influential role in the growth of the Seattle grunge scene. He started out in 1980 as a college student in Olympia, Washington, making a fanzine called Subterranean Pop, which promoted underground bands and independent records. Pavitt moved to Seattle in 1983 and converted the fanzine into a regular music column called Sub Pop that appeared in a local paper. He released a handful of records, including Sub Pop 100 in July 1986, which was a compilation album. He also released an EP called Screaming Life by a little-known band at the time called Soundgarden. After Pavitt's business partner, friend, and local band promoter Jonathan Poneman borrowed $20,000 to make it official, the label formally launched in 1988 as Sub Pop Records. That same year, Sub Pop launched the legendary Singles Club, which was like today's subscription services, but way cooler. For a set fee paid up front, Fans were promised a certain number of limited-edition, hand-numbered, vinyl 7-inch 45s sent to them via mail in the course of six months or a year. A flyer for the service that was included inside Sub Pop Records read, Hey loser, wanna find some action? Tired of being left out? Here at Sub Pop, we've started a special club for lonely record collectors like yourself. Every other month, we'll send you two limited edition 45s. All you have to do is send us your money. Now, what was interesting about the Sub Pop Music Club was that uh, it was the first place where you would find this new band called Nirvana, who covered a a song called Love Buzz by a Dutch band called Shocking Blue. And only a thousand copies were sent out. Uh, and then, of course, later on, Nirvana blew up. And if you can find a copy of Love Buzz, the original uh, sub-pop singles club uh, issue, you got a really expensive collector's item. In addition to the Nirvana single, the sub-pop record club sent out 62 singles over five years, from 1988 to 1993, from bands like Fugazi, Sonic Youth, and Soundgarden. By the late 80s, the Seattle music scene was definitely buzzing, but Bruce Pavitt was convinced it could go even bigger. He decided to showcase three of his bands at an event he called Flamefest. Held at the historic Moore Theatre, the concert featured Mudhoney, which had been formed by Mark Arm and Steve Turner after Green River split up, as well as two other up-and-coming groups called Tad and Nirvana. 
The show was a big risk. People thought Pavitt was crazy. The Moore Theatre was a way bigger venue than any of the bands had ever played before. But to the surprise of many, the show totally sold out. Nirvana, who had just released their debut record, Bleach, on Sub Pop, opened the all-ages concert, and according to a review in the local zine Backlash, despite having sound issues, the band played a totally intense show. The review described it this way, Hair explosions, pratfalls, jumps, body writing, and a trash-a-thon finale that left instruments and bodies strewn about the stage. At one point, Kurt Cobain jumped into the drum kit and got his hair tangled around his guitar strings. But he kept on playing, even swinging his guitar as he walked around the stage. Here's how it sounded. was next on the bill that night, followed by headliners Mudhoney, who had to stop three times during their set because of some pushing and shoving between the crowd and bouncers who tried to prevent fans from climbing the stage so they could jump off. According to the website Northwest Passage, at one point Mark Arm kicked a security guard in the back. Meantime, Kurt Cobain was standing at the side of the stage watching with Tad bassist Kurt Danielson. According to Northwest Passage, Cobain told Danielson that he liked to pogo to Mudhoney, and he wondered why more people didn't pogo anymore. Now, if you don't know what pogo is, legend has it Sid Vicious of the Sex Pistols was the first to pogo in 1976. But either way, it came out of the British punk scene and involves people jumping up and down while either remaining on the spot or moving around. As you can imagine, it takes its name from the use of a pogo stick and was a precursor to moshing. That night at the Moore Theatre, Cobain proceeded to jump up and down as Mudhoney played, and soon many people in the crowd joined him. Fans loved the show, but critics, well, they weren't as impressed. A review in the Seattle Times by critic Paul DeBarros said, If this is the future of rock and roll, I hope I die before I get much older. But organizer Bruce Pavitt was unfazed. To him, Lamefest was a turning point in Seattle's music scene. The fact that three local bands were able to sell out such a large venue encouraged Pavitt to keep pushing forward and to generate more interest outside of the Pacific Northwest. Starting in October 1989, Nirvana and Tad crisscrossed Europe together. And a month later, Mudhoney embarked on their own overseas tour that started in the UK. By December 1989, all three bands met up again to share the stage at the Astoria Theatre in London for Lamefest UK. Their days of playing gigs in front of 20 or 30 people appeared to be over. Meanwhile, another Seattle band born out of the Green River breakup was also gaining momentum. Mother Love Bone was made up of Jeff Ament, Stone Gossard, and Bruce Fairweather, formerly of Green River, as well as Greg Gilmore on drums and Andrew Wood, previously with the band Malfunction, handling vocals. In March 1989, the band released the EP Shine. Fade 
Shine was released on Polygram subsidiary Mercury Stardog, making it the first major label release from the booming local Seattle scene. After the EP was out, the band relocated to San Francisco to record its first full album. There was a lot of buzz around Mother Love Bone, who, like other Seattle bands, was a blend of influences from Led Zeppelin to Guns N' Roses. But what made them really stand out was their high-energy stage presence, especially charismatic frontman Andrew Wood, who seemed to be channeling 70s arena rock stars like Freddie Mercury and Paul Stanley. Here's Alan Cross. When Mother Love Bone was signed, this was a call to other record labels to go up to the Pacific Northwest and see what they could find. Remember, though, that this is the middle 80s, and we were in the middle of a huge, huge pop boom. So guitar rock really wasn't selling unless it was from the Sunset Strip, wore spandex makeup and had cool haircuts. That was the big thing. This idea of these these dark sort of Sabbathy bands coming out of Seattle, like big deal, because uh, that was something, you know, from 10 years ago, nobody was interested in. It was all about hair metal and so on. But when Mother Love Bone threatened to break through, that started to affect labels opinions of what was actually going on in Seattle. It's not really a stretch to say that without Mother Love Bone, there might not have been a gold rush to Seattle that led to the mainstream breakthrough that came a couple of years later. The next Seattle band with a major label release was Soundgarden. Lead singer Chris Cornell was actually roommates with Mother Love Bone singer Andrew Wood. Soundgarden had been on the scene for about five years, And in addition to a few tracks on the Deep Six compilation album, they had also released a couple of singles and EPs with Sub Pop before switching over to independent label SST, where they released their debut album, Ultra Mega OK. Cornell and band members weren't happy with SST and signed on with A&M Records, who released Soundgarden's first major label record, Louder Than Love, in September 1989. The lead-off single was Loud Love. Around this time, another Seattle group, Allison Chains, picked up a major label deal with Columbia, and they put out We Die Young, their first EP in 1990. So things were definitely heating up in the Pacific Northwest. It felt like a major breakthrough was imminent. But not by Kurt Cobain and Nirvana. They were still just a bunch of scruffy indie musicians touring around in a rusty old van. And not by Pearl Jam. They didn't even exist yet. Instead, it was Mother Love Bone that was expected to become the next big rock band. The release of their major label debut album, Apple, was just weeks away. Then, tragedy struck. On March 16, 1990, Andrew Wood's girlfriend found him unconscious. He had overdosed on heroin. Wood had struggled with addiction since the malfunction days, and at some point during 1989, he had given rehab a shot. After being discovered by his girlfriend, Wood was taken to hospital and put on life support, which allowed his roommate and best friend, Chris Cornell, time to fly back to Seattle to say his goodbyes. Wood died on March 19, 1990. He was 24 years old. Years later, Cornell said in a documentary about Wood 
that the passing of his friend was the death of the innocence of the Seattle music scene. He said it wasn't what came four years later. It was that day, the day he walked into the hospital room and saw Wood on life support. Wood's death also had a major impact on the trajectory of the Seattle music scene. Some believe maybe even more so than the death of Cobain. Following Wood's death, when Apple finally dropped after a three-month delay, critics both raved about the music and bemoaned the loss of what could have been. Chris Cornell told Rolling Stone that after Wood's funeral, he was swept up in grief for a couple of weeks before he turned to writing. That's when Cornell wrote two songs for his former roommate, Say Hello to Heaven and Reach Down. Cornell says the lyrics specifically reflected Wood and his feelings about him. He didn't let anything else in, calling the experience precious. He approached Wood's bandmates Stone Gossard and Jeff Ament about recording the two tracks as a tribute single. Gossard and Ament had dissolved Mother Love Bone and were in the process of creating a new band with guitarist Mike McCready called Mookie Blaylock. Yes, after that famous basketball player. Gossard and Ament agreed to join Cornell and Soundgarden drummer Matt Cameron in the studio to lay down the two tracks, and at the last minute decided to bring along a 24-year-old San Diego-based singer who was in town auditioning for their new band Mookie Blaylock. His name was Eddie Vedder. By the time the guys assembled at London Bridge Studios in Seattle, Washington in November 1990, eight months after Wood's death, Cornell had written an album's worth of material. So what started as a single turned into the one-off album and band, Temple of the Dog, named after a line in the Mother Love Bone song, Man of Golden Words. All 10 songs were recorded over a 15-day span in November and December 1990. The last track that was added to the album was the hit song, Hunger Strike. Chris Cornell told Rolling Stone that he thought the song would be a good message to end the album on. But initially, it didn't feel complete because it was just one verse. Then one day when Cornell was singing the chorus in the rehearsal space, Eddie Vedder just kind of shyly walked up to the mic and started singing the low, I'm going hungry part, and Cornell started singing the high part. And just like that, the whole thing came together. When the recording sessions for Temple of the Dog wrapped up, Cornell and Cameron returned to Soundgarden, and the rest of the guys returned to Mookie Blaylock. And following a quick name change, they became Pearl Jam. Temple of the Dog hit shelves on April 16, 1991. The album got great reviews, but didn't chart and initially sold just 70,000 copies. But that would change the next year after Pearl Jam and Soundgarden became two of the hottest bands in the country. A&M reissued Temple of the Dog and Hunger Strike went into heavy rotation on MTV. The album peaked at number five on the Billboard 200 following its second release and went on to sell more than a million copies. Okay, don't worry, I haven't forgotten about that other important grunge band. Around the time Temple of the Dog were in the studio recording their tribute to Andy Wood, Nirvana, which consisted only of Kurt Cobain and Chris Novoselic, were on the hunt for a full-time drummer. They were eventually introduced to 21-year-old Dave Grohl through their friends, the Melvins. Grohl was already a veteran of the Washington rock scene, having played a stint with the punk band Scream. 
It was actually at a Scream gig that Cobain first spotted Grohl and was blown away by his energy. Shortly after, Cobain and Novoselic invited Grohl out to Seattle, where he arrived in September 1990. They went to a local studio for a jam sesh, and Novoselic says in the Nirvana biography, Come As You Are, they knew within two minutes that Grohl was the right drummer. He was the missing link that they'd been looking for. Just over six months later, they would sign a major record deal with Geffen. After Andrew Wood's death, there were many in the Seattle music scene, like Chris Cornell, who felt like it was the end of an era. The grunge movement of the 80s was dead. But for the rest of North America and the world at large, grunge was just about to arrive. And when it landed, it slammed into the earth like an asteroid, blowing up everything in its path. Here's Alan Cross. Nobody was ready for the sound that was coming out of Seattle simply because nobody anticipated the huge demographic shift that we were going to see in the music consumer. So we moved from the classic rock people and the hair metal people quite suddenly over to Generation X, who was, at the beginning of the 90s, not in a very good place. First of all, they were overeducated and underemployed. They were genuinely afraid that for the first time in many, many decades, their standard of living would not even reach the same level, let alone exceed that of their parents. And there was a lot of weird stuff going on. We had the Gulf War. We had a terrible recession. Uh, These people were very, very concerned about where their lives were going to go in the new decade as we counted down the days to the end of the century and the end of the millennium. Uh, And it just so happens that this music, this, this angsty music from the Pacific Northwest, perfectly express their wants, needs, desires, fears, and concerns, and anger. And very, very suddenly, and to the sheer, utter shock of the entire music community, uh, grunge blew up. In the fall of 1991, within the span of barely over a month, three albums were issued in rapid succession, and rock music would experience one of its biggest and quickest shifts ever. With the arrival of Pearl Jam's 10, Nirvana's Nevermind, and Soundgarden's Bad Motorfinger, the hair metal of the 80s was dead. Suddenly, flannel shirts, Doc Martens, shredded jeans, and secondhand guitars replaced spandex, eyeliner, mile-high hair, and sharp, pointy guitars. While we're here, why don't we take a minute to talk about grunge fashion? The look associated with the bands that came out of the Pacific Northwest grew out of necessity rather than a need to make some kind of non-fashion statement. Long before Macklemore sang about popping tags, thrifting was a verb in Seattle, especially for members of struggling underground bands like Nirvana. They were dirt poor, so thrift shops were the only place they could afford to buy clothes. And what would you find in a Seattle thrift store? Flannel, ripped jeans, long johns, that sort of thing the kind of clothes a lumberjack might wear and then donate when they were done with it. And those clothes were useful. A flannel shirt worn around the waist is a precaution against the Pacific Northwest's unpredictable weather. Army boots are great for slogging through the mud. As for the greasy-haired, unkempt look, well, that too wasn't necessarily a statement. Charles Cross, the editor of the Seattle Music Monthly, The Rocket, says that Kurt Cobain was just too lazy to shampoo. And being dirt poor, he did a lot of couch surfing and even slept occasionally outdoors. 
Okay, back to the fall of 1991 when grunge was finally breaking through. Let's take a look back at the three albums that put Seattle on the map. First, there's Pearl Jam's 10. Released on August 27, 1991, 10 included soon-to-be classics such as Alive, Jeremy, and Evenflow. And it established Eddie Vedder with his baritone roar as a superstar frontman. The album went on to sell more than 13 million copies in the U.S. alone. Ironically, though, it never topped the Billboard 200. It reached the number two spot four times in August, September, and October 1992, but was blocked out from the number one spot by Billy Ray Cyrus, whose debut album, Some Gave All, spent 17 consecutive weeks at number one in 1992. I mentioned earlier that Eddie Vedder ended up in the Temple of the Dog recording sessions because he was in town auditioning for Jeff Ament and Stone Gossard's new band, which was then called Mookie Blaylock, but would become Pearl Jam. Well, obviously he got the job, but it's an interesting story how that all came about. Jack Irons, the founding drummer for Red Hot Chili Peppers, was friends with Eddie Vedder, who was living in San Diego at the time. Irons had gotten his hands on an instrumental demo tape from Stone Gossard, who was looking for a singer and a drummer for Mookie Blaylock. Irons immediately thought of Vetter and passed him the demo tape during a weekly game of basketball in Los Angeles. Vetter listened to the tape during his three-hour drive back to San Diego, where he clocked in for an overnight shift at a Chevron tank farm where he worked. He listened to the tape over and over that night at work. It contained five instrumentals. Dollar Short, Troubled Times, E Ballad, Richard E., an Egyptian crave. At eight the next morning, when Vetter finished work, he threw his surfboard into the back of his pickup truck and hit Pacific Beach as the fog crept in off the ocean. Vetter described what happened next during an interview with Rolling Stone in 1991. He said, It was great music, and it was bringing things out of me that hadn't been brought out. I was literally writing some of these words as I was going up against a wave or paddling. By the time he got on dry land, Vetter had written lyrics and vocal melodies for three songs. What he came up with was a mini rock opera, which Vetter says is about birth, incest, and death. Dollar Short became Alive, which as Pearl Jam fans know, is partly biographical and is based on Vetter's experience of learning that his stepfather was not his real father and that his biological father had actually died before he had a chance to meet him. The incest element of the song was fictional. Egyptian Crave became Once and was act two of the mini rock opera. It was about the protagonist from Alive becoming a serial killer because of the abuse of his parents. And Troubled Times morphed into Footsteps for the third and final act, which was about the protagonist's time in jail. Vetter recorded his demo on an old Merle Haggard cassette, wrote for Stone and Jeff on the tape, which he named Mama Son, and popped it in the mail. About a week later, Eddie heard that Ament and Gossard had been trying to reach him. He told a San Diego radio station in 1994 that between the midnight shifts and his schedule, he was never around for phone calls. 
It took Jack Irons from the Chili Peppers to track him down and tell him that Amen and Gossard wanted to fly him up to Seattle. Better was impressed. He was like, fly me up to Seattle? They can afford that? Shouldn't I hitchhike or something? Ament finally managed to get Vetter on the phone, and after a series of calls, plane tickets were bought with money pitched in by Michael Goldstone, an A&R guy at Epic Records. And Eddie secured a week's vacation on short notice from his job. Sometime during all of that plan-making, Eddie also managed to turn Gossard's demo E-Ballad into the song Black. Less than a year later, when 10 was released, it was a slow build for the band. But eventually, Pearl Jam became global superstars. And not everyone in Seattle was excited about their success. Kurt Cobain famously called them, along with Alice in Chains, corporate puppets hopping on the alternative bandwagon. This view was not uncommon among other people in Seattle at the time. Pearl Jam was looked down on for a few reasons, including the band's commercial-friendly sound, their explicit pursuit of stadium rock stardom, and the fact that Vetter wasn't even from Seattle. People were more used to non-commercial bands like Mudhoney, and if a band did want to strive for success, they were expected to be more subtle about it, like Nirvana or Soundgarden, who started off with indie labels and built a core following before signing with a major label. Pearl Jam would eventually, though, win over many of the local skeptics, and even Kurt Cobain famously ended the mostly one-sided feud between the two bands. The next album released in 1991 was Nirvana's Nevermind on September 24th. Remember, Nirvana had previously released Bleach in the summer of 1989 with Sub Pop, but the aggressive detuned rock album didn't exactly put them on the map. And Kurt Cobain wanted to do something a little different, something more like the loud, quiet dynamic of bands like the Pixies. In fact, Cobain famously said when he wrote Smells Like Teen Spirit, He was basically trying to rip off the Pixies and write the ultimate pop song. So after Bleach, Cobain and his bandmates started working on new music, and in September 1990, they released a song on Sub Pop called Sliver that was more like the sound Cobain was going for. Then the band started working with producer Butch Vig at his recording studio in Madison, Wisconsin. Tracks like Breed, Stay Away, and Lithium came out of those sessions. But they also led to some tensions among band members and the eventual departure of drummer Chad Channing. This opened the door for Dave Grohl, whose band Scream had just split up. With Grohl on drums, the band went back to Vig to continue recording and came away with a demo tape that they used to shop for a new label. And soon Nirvana left Sub Pop and signed on with a Geffen imprint, DGC. They were given a budget of $65,000 and headed to Sound City Studio in California to record the album that would become Nevermind. They actually spent minimal time in the studio, usually only taking two or three tries at the instrumentals of each track. And if they weren't good enough, they'd just move on to the next song. As for the lyrical content, some of it came together at the last minute. And according to Dave Grohl, Cobain's motto was music comes first and lyrics come second. Speaking about Cobain's lyrics, Butch Vig has said, even though you couldn't quite tell what he was singing about, you knew it was as intense as hell. Cobain himself told Musician Magazine the lyrics were often about bad personal experiences like breaking up with a girlfriend and feelings of loneliness and sadness something he called a death void. 
The first single from Nevermind was Smells Like Teen Spirit, and it came out a few weeks before the album dropped. And almost instantaneously, the track became a massive hit. You've probably heard the story that the title of the song was inspired by Bikini Kill vocalist Kathleen Hanna, who was Cobain's friend and Dave Grohl's girlfriend for a bit. She had spray-painted Kurt Smells Like Teen Spirit across his wall, referring to the deodorant popular with teen girls at the time. Cobain had no idea it was a deodorant and just thought it sounded cool. Danny Goldberg, Nirvana's manager and author of the memoir Serving the Servant, Remembering Kurt Cobain, says the chorus of Smells Like Teen Spirit pulls off a tricky balancing act, mocking the culture of mainstream arena rock while at the same time celebrating the joys of listening to your favorite underground band in a dimly lit club. Nirvana's label and management didn't expect Smells Like Teen Spirit to be a hit. They had their money on Come As You Are, which was set for release later in the fall. Smells Like Teen Spirit was released quietly and without significant promotion in the hopes that it would begin building awareness of the new album among listeners to college and alternative radio. The Samuel Bayer-directed video was shot at Culver City Studios in California on August 17, 1991. The fans in the video were all from a gig the band had done two days previously at the Roxy in West Hollywood. They gave out flyers there, inviting everyone to come along for the taping. The cheerleaders in the video were hired from a local strip club. The video was initially played late night on MTV, but became so popular that it eventually was in heavy rotation during the day. And of course, the success of the song affected the album sales. Here's Alan Cross. To show you how exa- how, how blindsided everybody was, when Nevermind was released, the record label sent less than 46,000 copies of the album to stores across the United States. It was this weird little punky indie band-ish thing from the Pacific Northwest. Kind of sounded like Sonic Youth. Uh, And if they sold 100,000 copies of this album, everybody would be happy. But to everyone's shock and surprise, within a month of its release, Nevermind was selling 300,000 copies a week. And it stayed that way for months on end, to the point where in January, they knocked Michael Jackson off the top of the album charts. And everybody is going, what the hell is happening? What is going on here? Where did this where did this music come from? And why is it um, taking the world by storm? Nevermind was certified gold and platinum in November 1991 and was nominated for two Grammys, but lost out on both. In the Best Rock Song category, they were beat out by Eric Clapton's unplugged version of Layla, which is still regarded as one of the biggest upsets in Grammy history. And in the Best Hard Rock performance, the Grammy went to the Red Hot Chili Peppers for Give It Away. But as we would find out later, the instant fame and popularity of Nevermind came with a price. Cobain said in an interview, It was so fast and explosive, I didn't know how to deal with it. If there was a Rockstar 101 course, I would have liked to take it it might have helped me. The third album in the 1991 grunge trifecta was Soundgarden's Bad Motor Finger, which actually came out on the same day as Nirvana's Nevermind, September 24, 1991. After the release of 1989's Louder Than Love, 
Soundgarden founding bassist Hiro Yamamoto left the band and was eventually replaced by Ben Shepard. With this new lineup, Soundgarden headed back into the studio in the spring of 1991 to record their third record. What they came up with has been described as the ultimate psychedelic metal album. Bad Motorfinger peaked at number 39 on the Billboard 200, which made it the most successful Soundgarden album so far. But that success did come with a bit of controversy. First of all, the lead single, Jesus Christ Pose, was criticized as being an anti-Christ anthem, and the band believes it didn't get the airplay it deserved because of that. But the song wasn't about religion, it was actually about rock stars who play the part of a vulnerable, suffering artist who is sacrificing everything for their fans, whether through a certain attitude or onstage gestures like the classic arms outstretched pose. Funnily enough, quite a few local Seattle bands felt that Cornell was a bit of a poser himself. Even Mark Arm from Mudhoney said in the book Grunge is Dead that Cornell's antics were a bit annoying and that he pre-ripped the seams of his shirts so he could easily pull off his shirt in the middle of a song. Arm didn't like that it was pre-planned, opposed to a spontaneous part of the act. The video that accompanied Jesus Christ Pose was also the subject of controversy, because it included upside-down crosses and burning crosses. And MTV at first held back playing the video in their regular primetime rotation. Despite the initial lack of airtime for the song and the video, Bad Motorfinger, with other hits like Outshined and Rusty Cage, eventually reached the masses and entrenched Soundgarden in the rock conversation. It also earned the band a spot opening for Guns N' Roses on their 1991 Lose Your Illusion tour. While playing in large stadiums exposed the Seattle boys to bigger audiences, they weren't exactly pleased with the experience. Cornell said in an interview, It wasn't a whole lot of fun going out in front of 40,000 people for 35 minutes every day. Most of them hadn't heard our songs and didn't care about them. It was a bizarre thing. And although Bad Motorfinger was definitely overshadowed by Nirvana's Nevermind when it was released, it eventually got its due. Bad Motorfinger was nominated for the Best Metal Performance at the 1992 Grammys. They lost to Metallica. And it was certified platinum in January of 1993 and double platinum three years later. When grunge went mainstream in 1991 with the release of these three groundbreaking albums, it was the beginning of a new era in rock history. But for the bands and the people involved in the early days of grunge, it was also the beginning of the end of a culture that had once belonged just to them and not the entire world. Coming up on the next episode of History of the 90s, we'll look at the cost of mainstream success for a genre that was created with a non-conformist and DIY ethos. Thanks for listening to part one. And a very special thanks to Alan Cross, host of the ongoing History of New Music. If you don't follow his show, stop what you're doing right now and look it up. And when you're done that, make sure you follow History of the 90s as well so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, why not rate and review us? Several great listeners suggested this topic, including Cody, Mark, Jasmine, and Ryan. Thanks, everyone, for all of your ideas. If you have a suggestion, please let me know. You can reach me through Twitter and Facebook at 1990s History and on Instagram at That90s Podcast. 
You can also email me at 90s at CuriousCast.ca. That's 90s at CuriousCast.ca. This episode was written and hosted by me, Kathy Gonzora. Our producer is Deal Velasquez, and sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston, with special editing assistance from Stephanie D'Souza. See you next time for more History of the 90s.